begin this morning by asking you a question. I wonder how many of you are fans of horse racing. Let me just see. If you like to watch horse races, let me just, I'm not talking about gambling, of course, because we're in church, but if you like to watch horses run, let me just see a show of hands. Horse racing is a fascinating, fascinating sport, and I try every year on the first Saturday in May to be in front of the TV for the running of the roses, for the Kentucky Derby. I'm just fascinated by the horses and the trainers and just the athleticism of this thing. It's, it's really kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Yesterday, in case you didn't hear, yesterday the Kentucky Derby was won by a horse by the name of California Chrome. Won the Kentucky Derby going away. It wasn't even close. It was really a fascinating race. And for those of you who are familiar with horse racing, you know that horse racing has been referred to as the sport of kings. Because going all the way back to England and the origins of horse racing, it is an expensive proposition to get into the game of horse racing. These horses are multi-million dollar investments over time. And I thought this morning I'd just kind of list for you some of the past winners of the Kentucky Derby and how much they cost to buy before they won the Kentucky Derby. This is a fascinating study. In the year 2011, Animal Kingdom won the Derby. He had cost originally $100,000. Whoa, $100,000. That's like as much as my car. It's unbelievable. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. For those of you who are visiting, I'm joking. That's a joke. That was funny, though. I, I like, I'm going to use that one again. 2007, Big Brown cost $190,000. Silver Charm in 1997 was $100,000. Gopher Gin, 20 years ago, cost $150,000. In 1987, Ali Sheba. How many of y'all remember Ali Sheba? Unbelievable horse. Ali Sheba in 1987 cost $500,000. Half a million. This is the one I was saving, though, for you. In the year 2000, Fusiachi Pegasus. And I had to practice that all week long. Fusiachi Pegasus cost $4 million. $4 million for Fusiachi Pegasus. For $4 million, Fusiachi Pegasus should have had wings. Remember, Pegasus was the winged horse? $4 million. Now, I told you that to tell you this. Yesterday, California Chrome crossed the finish line, and before he had crossed the finish line, his owners had been offered $6 million, and they turned it down. $6 million. They turned down before he won the Derby yesterday. Can you even imagine what this horse is worth now? Are you ready for how much the owners of California Chrome paid for him? $10,500. What a bargain. $10,500. His mother cost $8,000 and his daddy, the stallion, cost $2,500. $10,500. Now that horse is worth well over $10 million. We join me in a word of prayer for the owners of California Chrome. Is that unbelievable? I told you that whole story 
to tell you this. You never know. You never know. As a matter of fact, with passion and 11 a.m. properly caffeinated enthusiasm, tell your neighbor, you never know. You never know. As a matter of fact, if you were to read the Bible from Genesis to maps, the entire story of God is you never know. Because throughout the Bible, God is always taking the improbable and doing the impossible. God is always about taking the improbable and doing the impossible. You never, ever know when God is involved. Last weekend, we began this series, Carry On, studying the life, the book of Joshua. The entire book of Joshua in the Old Testament is devoted to God's story of taking the nation of Israel. You want to talk about a you-never-know kind of story? Israel, taken from one family when God chose Abraham and said, through you, I will bless the entire world. And from there, that promise began to be fulfilled through Abraham's son Isaac and then Jacob and then on through Judah and all the way until Israel found themselves in Egyptian slavery for centuries of slavery, for centuries until a guy by the name of Moses came along. And in the life of Moses, God found a murderous fugitive working for his father-in-law, tending herds on the backside of the desert and said, Moses, you're my guy because the rest of the world would never have chosen you, but I will choose you. And through you, I will deliver Israel from Egyptian slavery and into the promised land that I swore to Abraham centuries before. And it is the story of Joshua succeeding Moses where Israel begins to fulfill their God-given destiny and occupy the promised land. And so last week, we started in Joshua chapter 1. Chapter 1 is a good place to start. And we saw that God's command to Joshua as he began this succession of Moses was to be strong and courageous because God knew the battles that were ahead. But in Joshua chapter 2, we find an incredible story of you never know. We find in Joshua chapter 2 an amazing moment in the story of Israel and really in the story of God written throughout the entire Bible. If you've got a Bible, turn to Joshua chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can look it up on your phone. There's some incredible apps. One I would recommend is the Version Bible app. If you've got a smartphone, um, you know, if you've got one of those Taliban burners, it won't work. But if you've got a smartphone, you can, you can open that up and download the app that'll carry the entire Bible anywhere you go. It's great. But in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua has concluded his summit with God. He has told the elders and the leaders of Israel to prepare to occupy the promised land, prepare to cross the Jordan River and begin occupying the promised land. But Joshua was a shrewd, shrewd leader. And in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, we find something happen that forever altered the trajectory of Israel and really the world in an incredibly improbable place. Check this out. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then 
Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. Now, if I may, just kind of put myself in the shoes of the writer of the writer of the book of Joshua. I would have left that part out. I mean, if you and I were going to write the story of God and we were talking about Israel occupying their God-given God-given destiny, and, and we found out the details that the spies had gone to the house of a prostitute, I mean, no way is that making it past my editors. I mean, I'm going, you know what, it's interesting, but really kind of irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. But God, the Holy Spirit who inspires every word of the Bible, God chose to include this detail that these Joshua-sent spies went to the house of Rahab. Now, nowhere in the pages of Scripture does it even remotely imply that anything improper happened there. But it's fascinating that God would choose to include the fact that Rahab was a prostitute. In keeping with our theme this morning of you never know, <laughs> that, that God would choose to use the house of Rahab like this. Now, later on in the story, we find out that the reason was not just coincidental. It wasn't just a happenstance. Rather, Rahab's house was situated on the very wall of this fortress, the city of Jericho. And when you think of the city of Jericho, it's not a big place. It's a very, very small enclosed area, but it was strategic because it was really the gateway to the promised land, to the land of Canaan that Israel was about to occupy. And so Joshua, in looking at the map, understood what was about to happen, and he knew that in order to get where God was leading them, they had to first take Jericho. And so these spies come to the house of Rahab. Now, you and I, you know, removed from this event by some 3,500 years, might kind of look at it and go, well, interesting, Rahab was a prostitute. But I want you to really and truly stop and consider for a moment the fact that God chose to do this in this way. Because the Bible says that Rahab hid these spies at great personal risk. The king of Jericho heard that there were Israelite spies in the city of Jericho and that they had been at Rahab's place. And so he sent his troops there to Rahab's house and said, where are these men? And Rahab goes into kind of spy mode, kind of born conspiracy mode. And she goes, yes, they were here, but they have left by another way. You should go follow them. They went that away. While meanwhile, they were upstairs on the roof of her house, hiding in baskets underneath flaxen rope. And they were hiding there. And the Bible says that when the king's men left Rahab's house, they went after them the route that Rahab had pointed them, and the city gates were shut behind the pursuers of the Israelite spies. And it was once those city gates were shut that Rahab began a little negotiation. Rahab began talking to these spies, and she said to them, we know what's coming our way. We have heard rumors of Israel. We know that when you left Egypt, you 
crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and all of Pharaoh's armies followed after you and were consumed by the waters. We've heard what you've done to the kings and other villages and cities and places. And I need you to remember me. I have given you safe harbor. Check this out. Rahab had a phenomenal moment here in Joshua 2, verse 11. She said, no wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. You see here in the life of Rahab a turning point. No longer is she just a prostitute in Jericho. She is now confessing the authority of God. She's confessing the sovereignty of God. She says, what I have heard about defies logic. What I have heard about points me to the fact that your God is real and he is on your side. Your God is real. Rahab has come to the realization that he is God and she is not. And it is for this realization that God does something so powerful in her life and through her life. I'll get to that in just a minute. But it begins with that realization. And here's what you need to understand from the life of Rahab. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. There's not one person in this room or maybe watching online who is beyond the grace of God, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've said, no matter what, God's grace is sufficient. But it begins with that turning point in your life where you say, he is God and I am not. And for somebody here, this, that is going to be a radical, revolutionary concept. Now, others of us here, it was radical and revolutionary for us back down the road. We, we came to that realization at some point and went, man, he is God and I am not. But I've noticed in my own life, the longer I walk with Christ, the, the longer I'm around as a Christ follower, the harder it is to remember the sense of urgency that I had, that, that reality and the realization that God has forgiven me of everything, every sin, every word spoken to hurt or to wound, every impure thought, everything God has forgiven me for. And so that means that he wants to use me to share that with other people. He wants to use you to share that with other people. That's not just because I'm the pastor. That's because I follow Christ. So I wonder this morning, how many of you know somebody who is, we'll say, difficult? How many of you have a difficult person in your life? Don't raise, no, don't say it's the person sitting next to me, but you have that person. How many of you have somebody in your life that, that you would just say as a statement of fact, not as a judgment call, but just an observation of fact, like today is Sunday, that 
he's a jerk. Do you, anybody, again, it's not judgmental to say that. That's just an observation. That person in your life who's difficult is not beyond the grace of God. That person in your life who is tough to get along with, maybe it's your boss, your manager, maybe it's an employee who's kind of stirring the pot and creating more problems than they're solving. That person's not beyond the grace of God. He's not. She's not. No one is. God got to the heart of a prostitute named Rahab through the reputation of what he had done in bringing Israel out of Egypt to Jericho's doorstep. And his grace revealed God to Rahab. And Rahab had this transformation. She had this transformational moment and pivot in her life. But look at how she used it also. This is fascinating. Verses 12 through 13. Rahab is still speaking to the Israelite spies, and she says, Now, swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all their families. So Rahab, quote-unquote, got saved, but she did not get dumb all of a sudden. She, she was Innocent as a dove and shrewd as a serpent. She said, I believe in God and help me. Remember me. When you all come into Jericho, when, Israelite, when Israel takes us over, remember what I did for you. Remember the harbor that I gave you. And I love what the spies say. Verses 17 through 18. Before they left. The men told her, we will be bound by the oath we have taken only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all your family members, your father, mother, brothers, and all your relatives must be here inside the house. So, I want you to get the, the picture of this, this espionage, this clandestine kind of cloak and dagger moment. You know, this is, this is like the, the BC equivalent of, you know, flash the light four times and then wait. They said, we're going to hang this scarlet rope out the window. And when we see that scarlet rope hanging out your window over the wall of Jericho, all of Israel will know this house is to remain safe. As long as we occupy the rest of the city, as we take it over, and as the war rages, your house will be safe because of that scarlet rope dangling out of the window. Now that is a fascinating moment, a fascinating story to see how God would bring the entire nation of Israel to the doorstep of Jericho and then because of the faith of a prostitute in Jericho, they would complete their reconnaissance mission and the battle of Jericho would be successful. And we could, we could stay there and just kind of camp out and go, man, awesome, way to go, God. It was really cool. Close the Bible, beat the Methodists to Lubies, and it would be a win today. But you cannot... 
fully appreciate the significance of Rahab in the book of Joshua until you get to the New Testament. Now, <clears throat> Joshua and Israel and Jericho, this is roughly 1,400 years before Jesus was born. 1,400 years, and yet, if you fast forward that 1,400 years, you go to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. In chapter number one, you find a whole nother level of Rahab significance. And it's fascinating to me because it's listed in what is known kind of commonly as the genealogies. And a lot of people are like, why does the Bible list all of those genealogies? So-and-so begat so-and-so, and they begat so-and-so, who begat so blah, 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 blah. Here's why. Check this out in Matthew chapter 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. I'm not reading the whole list, but just check this out. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram, or Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Not Salmon, but Salmon. <laughs> Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Check this out. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. You never know. You never know who God's going to use. My daughter, <laughs> she's got a great line which she uses on a regular basis, and I feel it's appropriate here. Are you joking me right now? Are you kidding me? Rahab is an ancestor of Jesus himself? <laughs> you never know. You never know. You see, God reveals his purposes in his timing. God reveals his purposes in his timing. Here's what's fascinating to me about Rahab. Rahab becomes a legend of the faith. She's listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. She's mentioned in James chapter 2. She's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus himself. 
Now, we don't know definitively, but there is absolutely no indication whatsoever that Rahab even knew the word Messiah. There is no indication whatsoever that Rahab even ever discovered that Jesus was promised to Israel. And yet it was through her singular act of obedient worship that God preserved the nation of Israel for the purposes of blessing the entire world in the person of Jesus Christ. God reveals his purposes in his timing. I mean, <clears throat> blows my mind. And he did that through a prostitute in Jericho. You never know. You never know who God is going to do because God is all about taking the improbable in order to do the impossible. Now, people have asked, and rightly so, what about the lie that Rahab told? What about the lie? She told the king's men that they weren't there, and yet they were up on the roof, and she knew it. And you're exactly right. There's not one passage of Scripture that endorses or ordains or encourages the lie that Rahab told. But when you look at the confluence of events and all of the things that God wove together, do you really think for one second that he couldn't have done it another way if she had told the truth? In that moment, Rahab messed up. She lied. Simple. It's not okay because it was wartime. It's, not, it's a lie. But God did what God does in spite of Rahab's sin. Romans 8.28, we quote a lot of times when people hurt or when, when tragedy strikes. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And it's true. But God even takes the stuff that's outside of his will and uses it for his will and his purposes. He's God. That means he is large and in charge. That means that he is sovereign, that he is the king of kings, he is the Lord of lords, and he will reveal his purposes in his timing. Second thing you see from the life of Rahab is that God restores his people in their trust. God restores people in their trust of him. When you choose to trust God, God restores you, period. Rahab's life, by all accounts, was a wash. I mean, that, that, was, that was just going to be a loss. She had devoted herself to a life of prostitution. She was an outcast in the community. She was somebody forgotten. She was somebody that nobody would ever in a billion squillion years pick for God to use. And yet she trusted God. And when she trusted him, he restored her. And did he restore her? He used her 
to further his purposes and bring into this world the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, Jesus. You never know. This is who God is. This is what he does. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Bible puts a very, very fine point on this. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. And it's actually inscribed in the cornerstone of this building. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. It says, Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. Here, here's what I think that means. You dream the biggest dream you can dream. You envision the greatest vision you can envision. Pray about it. Think about it. Talk to other people. Grow and develop it. Present it to God. And this is what I believe God will say to you as he says to me. That is so cute. That is the, that is the sweetest little dream I've ever seen. Now let me show you what I want to do. Now, look at what's possible when God gets involved. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. You know what that tells me? You never know. You never know what God will do through a single act of obedience and trust as he reveals his purposes and restores his people. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, I want to just invite you to consider for a moment the reality that God loves you and has a purpose in your life. And that that ultimate purpose for you is relational in nature. It's not necessarily religious. It's not necessarily rules or regulations oriented. It's relational. If you're here today and you have never committed to that relationship you've never chosen to trust and follow him as Rahab did then in just a moment as a church we want to give you that opportunity it's a lifetime of growing in relationship with him but it begins with a commitment it begins at a jumping off place. It begins as you commit your life to him. As you 
confess your sin, as you claim his forgiveness, to begin walking with him. If you've never done that personally and definitively, then I want to invite you to do it right now. Just to pray right where you're sitting. Just talking to God. Silently just say to him, God, I need you. You are God and I am not. And I give you my life. I confess my sin to you. I claim your forgiveness. And Jesus, I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again for me. And I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you for just a moment to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Because this is a sacred moment. And if you just prayed that prayer and you meant it for the first time in your life, once and for all, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you, for your sake, to mark that moment. Because it's too important to just kind of let it slide on by like so many other moments. This is the most important moment of your life. And so if you just prayed that prayer and you meant it, I want to ask with all of our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you would just quietly but unmistakably raise your hand up high over your head and hold it there for just a moment. And as you hold your hand there, I want to make sure that you know this is real. God did that in your life. And it counts. It matters. For us as a church family, there's no greater priority than that moment in your life that God just accomplished. So, if you would, just put your hands down and allow us to put our hands together and to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.